Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat shalom, everybody. Shabbat shalom to everybody at home as well, watching on YouTube. And uh, if people in, in the uh, foyer could let the people in the prayer room know that we're starting the message, uh, and that would be great. And before we start, I want to encourage everyone, all the children at home, and, and the children here as well, to uh, either be taking notes during the message, so that will help you retain, help you pay attention, help you understand, or you can draw a picture uh, of, of something that you're hearing uh, in the message today. So you at home, if you want to grab a piece of paper and some crayons or something to draw with, uh, that'll be great as well to uh, uh, take uh, pictures or notes uh, about the message. Amen. We've been in a series of, on uh, Elijah and Elisha uh, for a long time, actually since last fall. And today is the final part, the last part. And we're going to study today the New Covenant passage that looks back upon the miracles of Elijah and Elisha and puts them in the context of the gospel. So turn with me to Luke chapter 4, beginning in 14. Luke chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 14. Yeshua returned to the Galilee the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread to the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And on Shabbat, he went into the synagogue, as it was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me. To proclaim good news to the poor. Uh, He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners. And recovery of sight to the blind. Who set the oppressed free. To proclaim uh, the year of jubilee. uh, The year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant. And sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were, were fastened on him. He began by saying to them. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him. They were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Yeshua said to them, Surely you'll quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal thyself. And you'll tell me, Do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his own hometown. I assure you, there, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut up for three and a half years, and there was severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of, of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, took him to the brow of the hill upon which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Now, as a backdrop to our series, we've been referring to Matthew 11, where Yochanan Hamad Biel, John the Baptist, who asked Yeshua, asked if Yeshua is the Messiah. And the response we read is this in Matthew 11, verse 4. Yeshua replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, 
And the gospel is proclaimed to the poor. And what Yeshua is saying here is, I want you to look at the time of Elijah and Elisha. And I want you to look uh, at, at my time. I want you to look at their ministry. And I want you to look at my ministry. I want you to notice that there are four kinds of miracles there. Because whenever God comes near, uh, and the way you know he's come near, and the way you know the spirit of the Lord has come, is that these are the four things that always happen when God is near. They always happen in the lives of people who are encountering the living God. And that's what we've been looking at for these past several months. Uh, last week, for example, we looked at the story of the chariots of fire and, and the Lord opening uh, Elisha's servant's eyes. And we discovered that the, the blind seeing means that when you really encounter God, you don't just get new information. You get a, a whole new experience, a whole new sense of the reality of God. The spirit of the Lord comes upon you and your eyes are open spiritually. So let me ask you, has this happened to you? Has this happened to you? Has there been a time in your life where you've seen that this has happened and your eyes were opened? If not, you have not actually yet met God through the power of his spirit. And then we also looked at the miracle of Naaman the leper being cleansed. And lepers being cleansed uh, doesn't mean that, that, that to find God, you simply try really hard to be good. Uh, and hope that someday maybe you'll be, be good enough for, for God to take you to heaven. No. But rather, the cleansing of the lepers means that when you meet God, you suddenly realize at that minute that whereas you had been unclean and unacceptable to God, you are now justified by the blood of Yeshua and you are cleansed and accepted totally by his grace. And you come to realize that salvation is not trying harder and hoping someday you'll be good enough, but it's a standing now. It's knowing that you're now clean in the sight of God, right now, based on Yeshua taking your sins upon himself on the tree uh, as your Yom Kippur scapegoat. So again, let me ask you, has this ever happened to you? Have you experienced Yeshua's cleansing and salvation by grace through your repentance and faith in him. If not, you have not actually met God through the power of his spirit. And if the dead are raised, that means to really meet God isn't just, just turning over a new leaf uh, or reforming your life, but it's inner transformation. It's inner rejuvenation. Uh, it's inner regeneration. It's new life. It's resurrection life. Uh, your heart is not just restrained, it's changed. Uh, it's not just reformed here and there. There's inner transformation, a new birth. Has that happened to you? If not, you've not met God through the power of his spirit. And when we come to this fourth sign, it doesn't seem to fit. It doesn't seem to be in the same category as these first three. The fourth sign of, of his messianic ministry, ministry that Yeshua points to uh, is that the poor have the good news preached to them. And our typical response is, oh, well, that, that's good for some people. Oh, some people, they like to help the poor. Uh, that's their ministry, uh, and that's great. But let me put this on the overhead. What Yeshua is saying is this, is that whenever I'm present, this is always there. I'm proclaiming the good news to the poor. And this is every bit as important, and every bit as intrinsic to my ministry as spiritual awakening, 
and justification by grace and the new birth. Okay, so what does it mean in Isaiah 61, which Yeshua is quoting from, and in Luke 4, that the poor have good news? And we're going to look at this today because here in Luke 4, we have Yeshua himself teaching us about Elijah and Elisha. Yeshua is showing us what it means when he says, if you want to know the presence of God, if you want to have a real encounter with the Lord, you'll find that the poor have good news preached to them. So I want us to walk through this passage today in Luke 4, uh, on the overhead, please, where there's three parts to the story. There's, first, there's Yeshua's sermon. Then there's the response to the sermon. And then there's Yeshua's explanation and his further exposition. So the very first part of the ser- is the sermon itself. Uh, Yeshua comes to the, his own hometown of Nazareth. He goes to the synagogue on Shabbat, uh, like, like any good Jew. Uh, and as you know, in the synagogue, there'd be the weekly Torah reading uh, and also the, the half Torah reading from the prophets. And then the reader or the readers, they would, after they read, they would sit down uh, and expound the text. So back then, the listeners would all stand and the preacher would sit. Very interesting. <laughs> Maybe we should be more biblical. <laughs> Yeshua came and he was asked to read from the half Torah, which that week happened to be from Isaiah 61. And of course, this is one of the most famous uh, of the servant of the Lord passages from the book of Isaiah. The servant of the Lord is this messianic figure in Isaiah who one day come and set everything right, who bring the kingdom of God, who bring justice and peace, but who also mysteriously will be a suffering servant as well. So you show he reads from this very famous servant of the Lord passage, and he sits down, and he starts to explain the passage. But his sermon, at least the part that's recorded here, his sermon is only one sentence long. So we read it in Luke 4.21. Yeshua says, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Which basically means Yeshua is saying, I am he. I am the servant of the Lord. I am the Messiah and I have come. I am here. I am the sermon. My life is the sermon. And that's all you need to know. And that's Yeshua's sermon. Now, what was the response to the sermon? This is kind of surprising. They liked it. They're not upset. They're not outraged. They're not offended that Yeshua, in essence, is proclaiming himself as the Messiah. But the people are not shocked. How dare he claim to be the Messiah? No, they're happy. So we read this in Luke 4.22. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Now, now what does this mean? The people in Israel at that time had a grid, a mental map of reality, a grid. They had a way of of understanding this text from Isaiah 61 that Yeshua was quoting. Uh, And here's how how they understood it. They said, we're good people. We are moral people. We're hardworking people. We're God's chosen people. We believe the Bible. We come together every Shabbat to study it. We try our best to obey the Lord, but we're under the thumb of a foreign power. Bad people, immoral people, sexually loose people, idol worshipers, pagans, heretics, Gentile dogs, (laughs) foreigners. And someday the Messiah will come and he'll lead us good people to triumph over those bad people. He will come as a conquering king. 
were the prisoners talked about in Isaiah 61? Were the oppressed uh, in this passage? Were the poor? Were the ones without self-government? Were the ones taxed into the ground? Were the ones occupied by a foreign power? They said, this passage is talking about us. And therefore, our view of the kingdom is that when the Messiah comes, he's going to come like King David. Uh, he's he's going to be a military hero. He's going to save us. We are looking for Mashiach ben David, Messiah, the son of David. Not Mashiach ben Yosef, the suffering servant, Messiah, son of Joseph. So we love Yeshua telling us that, yeah, he might be our deliverer. He's, he's, he might be our liberator from the Romans. So when they hear Yeshua preach Isaiah 61, and they apply it to themselves, they run it through their grid, and they say, we're the ones that get the Messiah. We're the ones to whom the Messiah is sent. We're the poor, we're the oppressed. And they look at Yeshua and they say, you know, this is just Joseph's son, the, the carpenter's kid. But, but who knows? Okay, maybe he is the Messiah. It's possible. And they run it through their grid. We're the oppressed. We're the prisoners. We're the ones spoken of in Isaiah 61. But they failed to ask something else from Isaiah 61. How does this reference to the blind work in here? Are we also the blind? They just kind of ignore that part of the passage. <laughs> so they're very happy about Yeshua's sermon. They want Messiah to come. They want Messiah to defeat the Romans and to restore their independence and their freedom. And Yeshua knows they don't understand the gospel. He knows they don't have a clue. You know why? Because they liked his sermon. He knows they're going to shake his hand at the end of the, at the, end of the, of the service. They're going to say, great sermon, Rabbi. Great drash. And therefore, he knows they could not possibly understand the gospel. Because a few verses later, when they do finally hear Yeshua preach the gospel, they're angry. They're furious. They're offended. They're very upset. And if you are a good person, if you've always been decent, if you've always been religious, never miss shul, and then you actually get to hear the true gospel message for the first time, you will find it offensive too. And if you've never found it offensive, if you've never found it upsetting, you probably have never really heard it. So in this last part of the passage, what does Yeshua do? He's saying, let's define the poor. He's saying, let's define who I'm sent to. Who is the Messiah sent to? He's sent to the poor. Look at Luke 4.18. The Spirit of the Lord on the overhead. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. Okay, so who's the poor? Well, let me tell you how my salvation works, Yeshua says. I go, just like God always sends his prophets. Just like God always sends his salvation, I go to people like the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian. And the overhead. Look at their lives. Look at their stories. Then you'll have a paradigm for how my salvation works. Then you'll understand who the poor are. Then you'll understand who receives God's salvation. Then you'll understand who receives the Spirit. And when the people of Nazareth hear this, 
what happens? They try to kill him, right? They drive him out of town. They try to throw him off the cliff. Now, he walks right through the crowd, but it's only a matter of time before they finally get him. Now, what are we being taught here? What we're being taught here is that you have to understand who the poor are or you don't understand Yeshua. When Yeshua spoke about who he was, they did not understand who the poor were, and he had to enlighten them. And so we want to ask us that we want to ask today, what does Yeshua teach us about the poor? And basically two things. Number one, he teaches that in the overhead, number that the gospel is for only the spiritually poor. And number two, the gospel is especially for the actually poor. The gospel is only for the spiritually poor, and the gospel is especially for the actually poor. So number one, Yeshua is teaching that he only comes to those who are spiritually poor. Now why does he choose the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian as the examples of the spiritually poor? Now the first thing we notice right off the bat is that one of them is actually rich. Now, don't forget that Yeshua has chosen these two people to get across, not only to them, but to get across to all of us, who he comes to. And it's very important that he did not choose two actually poor people. One of them, Naaman the Syrian, was very rich. And that's got to mean simply this. Now, you don't have to be literally poor in order to receive God's salvation. Sometimes, some of Yeshua's statements almost sound like that. Nor does it mean that if you are poor, you automatically get in. Now, if Yeshua had given us two poor people and said, that's who I'm going to, then you might have believed that he's saying that you have to be literally poor in order to receive him, or that you automatically get to receive him if you are poor. But because he gives us an example of both a literally poor person and a rich person, that gets rid of these two potential misunderstandings. But what they both are is spiritually poor. They're both spiritual outcasts. They're, both, they're, they're religious outsiders. Uh, they're moral outsiders. Well, look at them. Hopefully you heard and remember the teachings we had in the past several months on Elijah and Elisha, about, about the Elijah and the widow of Zarephath, and Elisha and Naaman the leper. And if you didn't, please go look it up on our, on our YouTube channel. You can go back and you can re-listen re- to those sermons. The widow Zarephath, she was a Gentile from Sidon. She was an idol worshiper, pagan, a heretic. She was poor uh, and, and a widow and a woman. She's on the outside of power and influence and acceptability. She's outside of all the moral and, and, and religious standards. She's not worshiping in the right way. She's not believing the right way. She's a complete spiritual outsider. But so is Naaman. Yes, he has wealth and power, uh, but he's a murderer. Uh, he's a kidnapper. Uh, he raids and he plunders Israel. Uh, he's, he's the enemy. Uh, he's a professional killer. He puts people into slavery. And he's an idol worshiper. He's immoral. And so these two people are absolute spiritual outcasts. Now, what does that mean on the overhead? First, Yeshua is saying, the only people I come to are the people who understand themselves to be spiritual and moral outcasts. People who know they have nothing of value before God. In fact, look how much he pushes this on us. 
he's very careful to say, I don't want you to think that I'm coming also to the spiritual outcasts. No, but only to the spiritual outcasts. I come, for the, I come only for those who admit and realize that they're poor in spirit, that they're spiritually outcast, that they have no claim of merit before God. Look what he says in Luke 4.25. I assure you, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. And the sky was shut up for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah, Eliyahu, was not sent to any of them. Yeshua says there were plenty of good people in Israel, but God went to a bad person. There were plenty of folks who studied Torah and prayed the prescribed prayers and went to synagogue on Shabbat and believed right, believed right and lived right. Yet the Lord only went to Naaman, the Syrian. Why this word only? Only. Yeshua is saying only people who know that they're spiritually outcast, only people who know they're spiritually poor, enter the kingdom of heaven. And what's so radical and so controversial and so offensive is that Yeshua is contrasting the people standing right in front of him in Nazareth with those that he's actually sent to. He says, I'm not sent to people like you. I'm not coming to people like you. Now, who are these people that he's not coming to? Uh, and, who are, and who are those that he, is, that he is coming to? Let me give you a couple of signs of who they are so that you can test yourself. One group I'm, one group I'm going to call the spiritually poor. The other group I'm going to call the spiritually middle class. Okay? By the way, you notice Naaman's rich, the widow is poor, no middle class. <laughs> now, do you think that the smugness and the condescension and the religiosity of many middle-class people is just a coincidence. I don't think so. On the overhead, if you're spiritually middle-class, you've got two marks that you can see in these people in Luke chapter 4. The first one is this, that when God is uncontrollable, when God acts as if he's not in your debt, you want to kill him. Look what happens here. These people from Nazareth, they're very good people. Every Shabbat, they gather at the synagogue uh, to read the scriptures, to study it, to discuss it. They're very good people. But the Lord himself shows up, says something that confuses them, says something that doesn't fit in with their expectations, says something that basically he says, I don't owe you anything, and they want to kill him. On the overhead, underneath their veneer of religiosity is hostility to God. That's the first sign of being spiritually middle class. You remember the story of the prodigal sons? And I'm purposely using the word sons in the plural. The father, he had two sons, right, in Luke 15. One, one son runs off to disobey him. Uh, he goes to a far country, squanders his wealth on wild parties and riotous living and immorality. The other son, the, the elder brother, stays home. He was obedient. He was hardworking. He was moral. He tells his father, I've never disobeyed you. So, so one son runs off, very immoral. The other son is incredibly moral. But at the end of the story, 
The elder brother is furious at the father for letting the younger brother back in uh, and welcome him home and throwing a, a welcome home party for him. And the elder brother refuses, remember, he refuses to go to the party. The elder brother is furious and angry uh, at, at his father when his father doesn't act the way he thinks he ought to. And he disrespects and he dishonors his father by refusing to come and go into the welcome home party. The elder son is very upset when the father acts independently of his wishes. And he shows that he's not in the elder son's debt. Now, why so much anger? Well, there's two ways to try to control God. There's two ways to try to escape God's authority. There's two ways to try to be your own master. There's two ways to try to get God. One way is the way of the younger son. By disobeying, by openly rebelling, by saying, I'm going to be my own person. I'm going to do what I want to do. But there's also another, much more subtle kind of rebellion. It's the way of the older brother. It's rebellion through outward obedience. Again, the much more subtle kind of rebellion is rebellion through outward obedience. If I obey, if I follow everything the Bible says, if I never miss worship, if I'm very good in every way, if I follow all the rules, then I've got God around my little finger. I've got him just where I want him, and he owes me. He owes me to give me a good life. And he owes me, he's got to answer my prayers. And the overhead. And the way you can tell that, that through your obedience, you're actually rebelling against God inwardly, in your heart, is that when he does something in your life that shows he doesn't owe you anything, you go through the roof. Your pent-up anger at God just spews out. Underneath the veneer of outward religiosity is all this hidden rebellion and anger and hatred of God in your heart. And that's what we have here in our passage uh, in Luke chapter 4. Look what the people of, of Nazareth did. The nice people. The religious people. They're studying Torah and the prophets on Shabbat. But when the Lord of the word shows up and says, look, I don't owe you anything, they immediately try to kill him. So, that's Chaim. Look at your heart. Are you spiritually middle class? When you pray, do you say, Lord, why is this person or that person having a better life than me? I've lived very faithfully for you. I've tried very hard. I've lived a good life. Do you see if that's your attitude, you're bringing your middle class values into your prayer life? You're bringing your middle class values into your relationship with the Lord. And it's got to stop. Because ultimately, you're being your own God. You're trying to be king. And you're trying to make him the servant. You're basically inwardly rebelling through outward obedience. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. Man looks on the outward appearance. but The Lord looks at the heart. And the mark, the sign of this inward rebellion is repressed anger that erupts when things don't go your way. 
So things don't go the way you expect that they should go, the way you think they should go. Other th- other th- okay, so the other thing we see here is that these people here in Luke chapter 4, they hate the very mention of outcasts. That's the second sign. They hate the very mention of, the, of these Gentile foreigners. They hate the very mention of the poor. Uh, they don't like the presence of these people. Uh, they're uncomfortable around them. So that's the second sign of being spiritually middle class. Someone comes into your midst who clearly isn't, isn't living right, and you feel the need to confront them right away. You feel superior to them, and you immediately judge them in your heart. So these are two signs. Look at your own life in these two areas. Are you spiritually middle class? Or are you spiritually poor? Are you poor in spirit? Who are the spiritually poor? First of all, the spiritually poor are people who are willing to look under the surface of their own life. Because if, if you just look at the surface, you can always find things that you've done well. Oh, I love my mother. I do nice things for her. And I try my best. Uh, yeah, sure, I do things wrong. But, but overall, I've lived a pretty good life. But the spiritually poor are willing to examine their own hearts and look under the surface. Because if you just look at the surface, you'll feel like God owes you. And if you think God owes you, you are not spiritually poor. Spiritually poor people look underneath and they say, you know what? There were times when I obeyed the Lord. And there were times when I disobeyed. There were times when I was moral. And there were times when I was immoral. But underneath, it was always the same. I didn't want God to have his clammy hands on my life. I wanted to be my own Lord. I wanted to be my own Savior. So a spiritually poor person, who's someone who looks underneath and sees their own motives. You're not just looking at the outward behavior. You're looking at the attitude of your heart toward God. And you see just how much you really don't want him there. You see just how much deep down you want to remain in control. You secretly feel like you know better how to run your life than, than God does. And you can try to escape from God through obedience or through disobedience. You can rebel against him through obedience or through disobedience. And you're never going to be spiritually poor until you see that. And on the overhead, there's a second sign of a spiritually poor person. So number one, they look underneath, underneath the surface of their own life. And then number two, they say, I can only be saved through a gift. I can only be saved if God gives me a complete gift. Only be redeemed through Messiah's mercy. Lord, you owe me nothing. You have, you have every right to cast me out. But Lord, please give me the gift of your salvation in Messiah Yeshua based on his finished work on the cross on my behalf. That's how you cross the line from death to life. You turn from your sin, you turn from yourself, and you turn to Yeshua, to him. You ask him to be your Savior and your Lord. And to do that, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. But most of you don't have it. 
You see, if you come with something, if you come and say, I've really been trying to be good, I've really been trying to follow the Torah, oh, Lord, please come into my life, uh, I'm trying to clean up my life, uh, you have come middle class. You have not come with nothing. You haven't come poor. You haven't admitted your utter spiritual poverty and helplessness. You have not confessed, nothing in my hands I bring. Only to your cross I cling. If you want to come to Yeshua, you must come poor. Yeshua says, only these people, only the spiritually poor, only the people who know that they're spiritual outcasts, in spite of how well put together and polished and Torah observant and moral they may seem on the surface, only people who are spiritually poor are those who I am sent to. Only to them. Yeshua says, I am not sent to the self-satisfied religious establishment. I'm sent to the outcasts. I am not sent to the religious leaders uh, who jealously guard uh, their power and position and prestige and authority. I'm sent to those on the spiritual margins of society and the overhead. And the second thing this passage teaches us is that not only is the gospel only for the spiritually poor, but also the gospel is especially for the actually poor. Read your Bible. You will quickly notice over and over and over again when you have a poor person next to a powerful person, when you have a woman next to a man, when you have a, a racial insider next to a racial outsider, it's always the person without power the person on the outside who gets it, who understands. So, for example, in 2 Kings 5, it's the little slave girl who understands the spiritual truths, not the great general. In the Gospels, you've got the fallen woman who understands, not the proud religious leaders. Over and over again in the scriptures, in both the Tanakh and the New Covenant scriptures, you see this. And that's why the people of Nazareth, they, are, they, they are st- still are so offended but the Lord, even, even centuries later, they're still offended that the Lord would send Elijah to be saved from the famine by a poor Gentile pagan woman, this widow of Zarephath. How could God do that? And the answer is, in God's infinite wisdom and mercy, he sets things up so that the people in this world who run things don't understand the gospel as a general rule. Whereas the people who've been pushed out to the margins of power, whether women pushed out by men, racial minorities pushed out by the majority race, uh, ethnic minorities pushed out by the dominant culture, uh, wealthy in the upper middle class uh, pushing out the lower middle class and the working class and the poor, the more you're pushed out, the more likely you are when you hear the message of the gospel to understand it and to embrace it. God, in his infinite wisdom and mercy, has set things up this way. We read a summary of this in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26, where Paul says this. He says, brethren, think of what you were uh, when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world 
to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things which are not to nullify the things that are. Why? So that no one may boast before him. James chapter 4 verse 6. God opposes the proud. Gives grace to the humble. Now why does it work this way? Well, the biblical doctrine of sin means that no one group is any less sinful than any other group. So the poor are no less sinful than than anybody else. But the doctrine of grace is that you're only saved by losing power. By a savior who lost power. The life of Yeshua shows us this. And he emphasizes this point by choosing this passage to read that day. The Haftor portion would have been several chapters long, but he chose to read only a very small segment from one and a half verses, Isaiah 61.1 and part of Isaiah 61 verse 2. And by the way, he stops in the middle of a sentence. Did you notice that? What does he say? Look again, Luke 4 verse 18 and 19. Yeshua says, this, he's reading now from the Haftor, and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, if you go back to Isaiah 61 to find this passage, this quote, you'll see that he stops in the middle of a sentence. Now, if you do that, you are doing it very deliberately. You're doing it very intentionally. And you're doing it to make a point. Well, do you know what the next part is that he left out? From Isaiah 61, the second half of verse 2. And the day of the Lord's vengeance. This passage is saying that the servant of the Lord will bring the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the Lord's vengeance. And what Yeshua is saying here, by leaving this last part out, he's saying, I'm not here to bring that vengeance. Not at this coming. At this coming, I've come to take vengeance, to bear vengeance, not to bring it. At this coming, I've come to receive judgment, not to send it. I have not come with a sword in my hand, but with nails in my hands. And therefore, we have what we have here is a Savior who says, I'm going to save the world through a loss of power. I'm going to save the world by losing I'm going to save the world by being tortured and dying for the sins of the world. And religious people cannot understand that. Because to them, everything is about power. Gaining power, not losing it. And especially not voluntarily laying it down. Their mentality is, if I pull myself together, if I'm very strong, if I have self-control and willpower, uh, and I do everything right... If I can summon up enough power, then God will give me his power. But Yeshua is saying, no, I'm sorry. The gospel is all about the opposite. I came and saved the world through an utter loss of power. And therefore, you could only receive my salvation by giving up all claim, by being spiritually poor, by giving up all power, by surrendering. 
And then you'll find for the rest of your life that you'll be so filled with my love and my acceptance that you can, you can freely and joyfully surrender your life and serve others uh, and see people changed uh, through continually giving up your rights for other people, by continually giving up your money for other people, by continually becoming a servant uh, to other people. And the secret Yeshua says is that I now have the ultimate power because I gave up power. And you will have the ultimate influence if you don't try to coerce. And you'll have ultimate freedom because you've made yourself a slave. That's the gospel. Matthew 20, uh, verse 16. The first shall be last. Uh, the last shall be first. And the greatest among you will be a slave to all. And therefore Yeshua says, who are the ones who's going to understand all that? It's going to be the people who've been pushed out. I read a very interesting article recently about a white minister who was dressing a convention of black pastors. And he said, isn't it great? We live in a nation where if you come to this country really poor, and you work really hard, you can become rich. Well, his ancestors were Scottish. And all these black pastors, they said, you know, that's very interesting. Our ancestors came to this country pretty much the same time as your ancestors came. And we worked a whole lot harder. 18 hours a day under the lash. And yet somehow we are not rich. And the point of the article was that if you made it to the top, if you, are, if you are on the top, you most certainly tell yourself that you did it through your hard work and through your savvy. But people who've not made it to the top, they realize it's a lot more complex than that. They understand the people who've made it to the top have gotten there through grace. People who win, who are on the top, love to say it's through works. The people on, well, uh, people on the outside know that the insiders are there through grace. And now along comes the gospel, which says, you're spiritually poor, but if you want to admit that you are, you cannot know my salvation. You must live lives of sacrifice. You have nothing to merit salvation. You must admit you're an abject sinner. And if you hate that, if you bristle against that, if you say, that's not right, that's too primitive, that's too abject, uh, that's too demeaning, I could never grovel like that, then you are spiritually middle class. You do not understand the gospel. And it's probably because you think the, the, the place you are in life is due to your work and due to your savvy, when it's really due to God's grace. It's through the fact that God has made it possible. People on the outside understand that intuitively, and people on the inside never do. Because it's all, let me close with this. The reason it's this way is because ultimately it's all about what you do with the sun. Let me close with this story. He's about a professional artist. He paints all the time with his son. He's a very famous painter. And then World War I occurs. The son goes off to war. Uh, the father doesn't hear from him. 
After the war, war, all he knows is his son is dead. Well, one day, there's a knock on the door. And there's a young soldier standing there. He says, I was with your son for most of the war. He actually died for me. He jumped in front of a bullet. And and I'm so sorry. He died saving me. I know he he was a great artist like you. I I would see him drawing all the time whenever he had any free time. And I always wanted to draw, but but I wasn't any good. But your son would try to teach me how to draw. And I know this isn't really any good, but, but I have drawn, I drew a picture of your son. And I just want to give it to you. And the father looks at it. It was kind of one-dimensional, not really very good. But the father says, thank you so much. You have no idea what this means to me. So the young man leaves. And eventually, the father dies. He was a very famous artist. He had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of paintings in his estate. So everyone has now crowded into this huge auction house to bid on his paintings as part of the estate sale. And the auctioneer begins by opening up a sealed envelope and saying, before we start the main auction, there's one additional drawing that's to be auctioned off. And they unveil it, and it's that young soldier's picture of the artist's son. And everyone looks at it and starts laughing, saying, that's the most horrible drawing we've ever seen. What a joke. We didn't come all this way to waste our time on such trash. Get that picture out of here. Well, it just so happened the young soldier who had drawn that picture was sitting in the audience. And the auctioneer begins, who will give me $1,000 for this drawing? Everybody laughs. Who will give me 2000 And they laugh and they jeer. And the young soldier stands up and he says, I have one month's pay to my name. That's all I have. But please, let me have that picture. Because it's a picture of a son, the one who died for me. And the auctioneer says, sold. So they hand him the picture. Then the auctioneer, he takes the mallet, and he slams it down on the podium, and he says, the auction's over. The crowd starts screaming. What do you mean the auction's over? It hasn't even started yet. And he opens up a second envelope, and he pulls out the last will and testament. And it says, the one who takes my son gets it all. And that's my word for you today. And that's the gospel. The one who takes the son gets it all. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Father, we ask your help for us to be poor in spirit, to be spiritually poor. We ask, Lord, your help for for us to humble ourselves, to admit our sinfulness and our selfishness and our prideful heart, to admit we have utter need for your grace. Lord, we repent of our middle-class attitude that secretly, subtly, subconsciously thinks that we're really pretty good. That we have something to offer. That we have any claim upon you, Lord. We confess we have no merit on our own. That we are fallen creatures in need of a new heart, a new spirit, a new birth. 
and that we can be saved only by your grace, through your provision, and the atonement of Messiah Yeshua. Lord, help us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Help us not to look down our noses at people that are different from us, or or less well-off than us, or or, or not as outwardly moral or, or, or as religious as us. Help us to take the position of a servant, even as you yourself did, Yeshua, who being in the very nature of God, did not regard, you regard equality with God as, as a thing for you to grasp, but you humbled yourself. You took on the form of a bondservant. You became obedient even to death, even to death on a cross. Lord, today, let this same attitude, this same mindset also be in us. We pray it in your name, Yeshua. Amen.